It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 7, starring Dick Cavett, originally aired on November 11th, 1976. Hello, everyone. It's me. It's Keith. I'm back again. And with me, as always, is my good pal, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hey, Keith. And joining us for his very first time, his debut, if you will, is a lovely young man from far, far away. His name is Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Keith. Hello, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. Kevin is a, a performer I, I used to do some things with and probably did the funniest improv set I ever saw. Um, one of these flawless performances where there was just nothing, nothing bad. Well, not to your knowledge, no, but <laughs> <laughs> I never saw it. I, I, I was I was blessed. I, I also have performers I used to do some things with. <laughs> So, Kevin, we usually ask people when they're sitting in the third chair for the first time, what's your knowledge of Saturday Night Live growing up or even now? Are you a fan today? When did you start watching? Anything you have to uh, have to say about the show? To be honest, I started watching it when I was, uh, I got to say, when I was in grade school, like when I was a, a wee lad. Um, my older brother, also named Keith, was a real big inspiration to me comedy wise because we kind of had the same sense of humor. And he was really big into like Saturday Night Live and, and Monty Python and all that. So I got really into watching these types of sketch shows. And I would always stay up late on Saturday and watch them. And I got really into like the early 90s stuff when it came to Saturday Night Live. So you're talking the Dana Carvey years or a little later? I would say the Dana Carvey years, yeah. Let's uh, let's jump into the show here. So we have Dick Cavett back for a second time. And the musical guest is Rye Cooter. And we're back from Brooklyn. We're back in Studio 8H finally after a few weeks over in Brooklyn at Studio One. Slumming it. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Cavett, talk show host, writer, etc. We covered a lot of his bio in his previous appearance, uh, episode 12 of season one. Uh, at this point in time, Dick Cavett, known as the thinking man's host, was between his two biggest gigs, both called the Dick Cavett Show. Thing about Dick Cavett, if you're interested in like world news or pop culture from 1970 whatever, or 1960, whatever, you, you'll get far more out of watching an old episode of the Dick Cavett show than you would from really Carson or Mike Douglas or Tom Snyder or any of them. Uh, Matt, I know that you'd watch some Dick Cavett episodes in, in the interim. What, what's your impression now that you've taken a bit more time to watch Cavett? I love the Dick Cavett show. It's on Tubi. There are just seasons and seasons of Dick Cavett. He's so good at his job. He's so into his guests. I, I wish there was a, a, a some sort of modern equivalent. I've never seen anything quite like it. Yeah, it's just a talk show format. Sure, I get it. Like, he's not reinventing the wheel. But he's got what nobody else does. That's Dick Cavett. Love it. Check it out. Did you ever watch any, Kevin? I haven't watched any Dick Cavett show, unfortunately, no. Uh, I'm only familiar with him from the one episode of The Simpsons where Homer was crusty. And oh, yeah. Were at, they're at the Cable Ace Awards. That's one of my favorite parts of the show where they're, like, talking, and then he... Uh, he threatens him and he just has a very awkward presence which is yeah. very uh it's disarming and calming at the same time and then it's hard to explain dick cavett without just watching him do anything i feel like for this particular episode they could have used him a lot more 
to be honest. Yeah. Were you aware that Dick Cavett was in Beetlejuice? Yes. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He's the agent for 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 Delia, right? Yes. yes. That's yes. right. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to walk over you, but that just like hit me like a ton of bricks all of a sudden. Yeah, Bernard. <laughs> Dick Cavett, like I said, hosted season one. The episode was okay, but Cavett certainly shined in certain sketches. One of Matt's favorites, the Dick Cavett lookalike contest. Cavett was your uh, number two favorite host of uh, season one, Matt. Really enjoyed that last episode. Was pretty. Was feeling pretty good coming into this one, I must say. <laughs> All right, so let's go to our cold open. And it's Gilda Radner for Chroma Track. And this is a parody of RCA's color track back in the days when you had to adjust the color on your TV all the time. Color Track did it for you. So basically, this was an an ad series where somebody would appear on TV and say, my eyes are blue, my shirt is red. But what Gilda is doing is she's actually giving the wrong colors. And we flash to uh, Garrett Morris watching at home, and he's getting annoyed that the color doesn't match. And he starts hitting his TV. The image of Gilda on the TV is actually selling the hits and stumbling, and then she falls down. And for the first time in a long time, uh, somebody other than Chevy Chase gives live from New York. I really like this. Gilda was good. Uh, Garrett was fun. Uh, there was a lot of energy in this one, and I think it was a pretty good cold open. Hot disagree. I thought this was fucking stupid. I thought it was a Z-grade commercial parody that should be buried in the backhand of Weekend Update. You, you know, you get these ads running at a particular time, and they do this really stupid joke with them as a cold open. Uh, I thought it was moronic and mercifully short. I hated it. I'm kind of in between. I relate to it a lot from kind of calibrating televisions and monitors in my workroom. But I just, there's a lot of energy to it, but I just, uh, it just felt stale, I guess is the best way to put it. I love Gilda Radner. I, th I think she's hilarious. And when it started, I, I got a genuine chuckle from it, but the rest of it was just banging on the TV. And then we get live from New York at Saturday night. And it's just mercifully quick, I should say, because I didn't know how much longer he'd be able to stretch that out. So Dick Cavett comes out for his monologue, says he was called in at the last minute as Elliot Gould was supposed to host, but he backed out because he'd be paid better for the Olivia Newton-John special. Don't know if this is totally true, but there was a Olivia Newton-John special and Elliot Gould was indeed on it. Either way, there was no hard feelings because Elliot Gould will be back many times. So Dick Cavett reads from cards with questions from the audience members. The first question is actually for Elliot Gould, but the rest are for Cavett. And they seem like actual audience member questions, or at least Cavett does a good job in selling it as such. This was a good showcase for his quick wit. He's kind of limited in what he can do, but what he does, he does well. So yeah, I, I kind of enjoyed this monologue a little long, but I thought it was kind of a good use of Dick Cavett. Some of them seemed a little hammy, but uh, you, you're right. They definitely played to his strengths. I thought it was good, very good use of knowing who your host is playing to their strengths not just you know using a box of jokes and giving them to that week's host uh, i enjoyed it i thought those was a really good monologue and i wish that the la cool thing was true because it kind of gives him more sincerity with him being on uh the host kind of the way he presents himself but i absolutely love the the dick questions like so much i thought that was really cool in terms of how whether they're written by the audience or not it it just felt really natural my favorite joke was when, uh, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the one that said, what's it like being married to such a sexy blonde? And he said, well, you'd have to ask her. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Our next sketch, it's an ad. It's puppy uppers and da doggy downers. So uh, Lorraine and Gilda are playing Scrabble, and Gilda talks about her dog being really lazy. Lorraine recommends puppy uppers. So we flash forward a week later, and Gilda's dog is 
awfully hyper and is much smaller. It's obviously a different dog. And uh, she's a little annoyed with how uh, hyper the dog is. So Lorraine gives her doggy downers. And basically, these are treats that will let you drug your dog to be in whatever mood you want. I uh, I laughed a lot, and I thought it was a nice touch using two different dogs that were, were different sizes. Yeah, I didn't like this one. <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I'm not. I have a weird thing about like uh, commercial parodies, I guess is the best way to put it. I just didn't. I got a little chuckle of the, the switching of the dogs, but it's just I wasn't. I just wasn't sold on it. I just kind of I, I felt kind of meh afterwards when i was watching it i found it pretty middle of the road it's certainly not the dregs or certain tears of s and hell that we've seen in some of these commercial parodies but nor is it in the same league as the bassomatic uh i would say slightly above average fake commercial content so our next sketch is blonde ambition and this is really just a big parody of john dean's blind ambition which came out in 1976 John Dean was a White House counsel to Nixon. It was really the main witness that brought Nixon down. So it starts at the hearing where uh, John Dean, played by Dick Cavett, testifies. And we flash back. We see Nixon talking to his personal secretary, Rosemary Woods. Kissinger comes in. Kissinger, of course, played by Belushi. So uh, Nixon and uh, Woods have this banter about the taping system that he's installed in the Oval Office. And Nixon laughs about how the tape machine will help him pin the whole Watergate thing on Dean. And he laughs at how foolish Dean will look when the tape surfaces. John Dean comes in. Nixon tries to get him to sign a confession, but Dean figures it out. It's almost like uh, the sketch from last year, Nixon's final days. It's a lot of Watergate jokes. We do get to see Aykroyd's Nixon, which is always fun to see. And Belushi's Kissinger, which is usually good to see, but it was a lot weaker than usual. Dick Cavett was the perfect choice to play John Dean, and Gilda did well uh, herself. This is not as good as Nixon's final days, but what is? I'm a Watergate guy. I, I actually enjoyed this. It was far too long for my tastes. I thought it was way too long. That'll be my first note on there. I'm a big Nixon impressions fan. My favorite impression of Nixon is Billy West's Nixon in Futurama. It's hard for me to see anyone play Nixon and not hear that voice. But I absolutely da- love Dan Aykroyd. I love young Dan Aykroyd. He's just he has so much energy. He does really well. But Belushi, he he just seemed very muted in the sketch. I, 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 I thought he could have been a little bit more into it. He didn't add more to the sketch than I thought he would. Once Dick Cavett comes in, though, I love the sketch from that point forward. It probably should have ended before like the, the, the second ending. Like It feels like it has two endings when he's in, mm-hmm. in, in the prison with his wife. I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I could have. I'm trying not to be too hard on it, but part of me is like, nah, you'd be a little bit more hard on it. Yeah, that's reasonable. I think this was really hacky and bloated. And I think if you're uh, staying up late on a Saturday night when this is first airing and you're getting Nixon jokes, you're like, check something else out for a few minutes. This was dated when it aired. It's not funny. It was really boring. It was too long. It's a bunch of circle jerk joke writing about intellectuals sitting around like they're writing a fucking Pong sketch and uh, talking about how smart they are. There's, There's no jokes here. You got Aykroyd doing this impression, which he's good at. Yeah, it's funny. But then you've got these tired ass jokes about Watergate. Like, What kind of niche audience are you playing to at the start (laughs) of your hot Saturday night show? This was a dreadful, dreadful sketch. I hated it. The big difference on the timing is that Dean's book had just come out. And I think that's where, like with last year's uh, Nixon's Final Days, Woodward and Bernstein's book had just come out. So I think that's why they're doing it. But I totally dig what you're saying about, you know, they are 
four years, four, three-year-old jokes at that point. What a reach, yeah, that this boring-ass guy's book just came out. I'm sure that's really hitting the hot market on a Saturday night TV audience. <laughs> So uh, Rye Cooter comes out. Uh, I don't know much about Rye Cooter. I didn't. I, I did a little bit of reading, of course. Um, so Rye Cooter is ranked by uh, Rolling Stone as the eighth best guitarist in in the world, known for his multi instrumental talent, but is particularly with the slide guitar. Um, his work's a real mix of genres. Goes back in time to get traditional songs and reworks them, sort of like Leon Redbone. But unlike Leon Redbone, he really puts a, a real modern spin on it. Um, he later did the same, or he had previously done the same with international world music as well. His most recent release was Chicken Skin Music, and he plays a song called Tattler from his 1974 album Paradise and Lunch. It's an old gospel song that's been uh, tweaked to sound kind of modern i'm not familiar with rye cooter like i said i was really excited by his bio but i was really let down by the song it just sounded a little too james taylory for me saturday night live making a clear and obvious statement with this episode they have no interest in young viewers none if you are below 30 turn off your television terrible boring not for me and i continue to be disappointed with the musical guest choices that this show makes they are so reserved they are so safe and pedestrian with the one exception of patty smith last year you know you're going to keep me hanging on to that until you get your act together uh, I, I don't get it i don't get what the appeal is to, to to selecting these dry musical guests for your hot saturday night show come on I only know Rye. We're we're close. I only know him from like some of the movies, uh, like scores that he did. Like hmm. he did, um, he did Crossroads, the the Ralph Macchio film mm -hmm. about blues singing, which I barely remember, but it was uh, you know not a bad movie. And not he also the, did some of that's not the Britney Spears Crossroads, right? <laughs> no, but if he did the music for that, it would have been an infinitely better movie. That's true. Uh, yeah. He also worked on a movie called Streets of Fire, which I really like it's a very weird like uh i don't want to say niche or cult film but the only reason i know it is because uh they used the poster as an inspiration for an album from another group that i enjoy called the proto men which is rock opera mega man style but if you look at like the first three the first two sketches and then this musical guest i'm not sure if they know what they're doing like i understand from like a, a sketch comedian perspective you want to have a show that's like safe that you can air that people can see but it just seems very tone deaf i guess is the best way to put that you're not really appealing to a lot of people like if you come home from the bar and you're watching this you're probably gonna just turn the show off the song was okay i guess if you like you know music that's playing at your parents anniversary or something to that effect <laughs> like that's what it felt like to me so gilda introduces next week's host is going to be paul simon with george harrison gilda says it's going to be terrific i believe matt does not concur and first of all fuck paul simon Second of all, I'm really excited to see George Harrison on Saturday Night Live. I think All Things Must Pass is one of the best albums of the 1970s. I am in a bit of a reverse fortune, jacked for the musical guest next week. But Paul Simon, is he's like a 70-minute piss break. <laughs> so Weekend Update, this is our first time with Jane as regular Weekend Update host. Jane reads uh, Ms. Magazine. It's a How's Your Sex Life survey. 
There is the prostitution stamp uh, joke. That's an Allen's Y Bell, and it's uh, the stamp is ten cents. It's a quarter if you want to lick it. This is one of the first jokes that Chevy told on his first weekend update. So uh, I think that was a throwback to that on purpose. There are students. It's a sight gag from a picture. They're parading with the head of Jerry Ford. Got a big laugh. Another picture sight gag with the world's largest priest. Jane does a whole thing where she does a whole bunch of voices from uh, movies. And it's basically a parody on uh, Patty Duke's Sybil, which is coming out. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And there's just some some F-ups with uh, the cameras moving. And Jane keeps doing some hellos as she checks the cameras. A few little flubs that she handled brilliantly. So uh, then we go a bit where Smokey the Bear had died. And it throws to Lorraine doing her reporter voice. And she mentions that Smokey wants to be cremated. The services were attended by a bunch of famous animals and people with animal names. And unfortunately, Smokey's cremated causes a forest fire i'm a very big fan of jane Curtin. i I absolutely love her weekend updates always my favorite part of saturday night live has been for for years uh my favorite part of it actually was the joke at the end with the good samaritan i'm not going to repeat most of that just because it uses some strong language and i thought it was a really well done little joke and actually got a, a quite a big laugh for me um but the things i love about any type of sketch though is how they deal with uh when somebody messes up or when there's a flub like the camera thing uh i absolutely thought that was super hilarious i don't know why i'm like this i just am the thing I didn't like, though, was the Smokey the Bear bit. I just thought that was a little bit more drawn out and kind of the way they did the uh, it caused a forest fire type thing without really addressing it. I just thought that was really awkward and could have been handled better. But yeah, overall, I, I enjoyed it, but I think they could have been a little bit stronger in spots. Weekend Update is uh, so hit and miss, uh, you know, especially as we watch the old ones. Uh, a lot of the shit is just too far gone or it's just too obscure. You know what? That's fine. But a good anchor, a good personality can really carry the whole segment from start to finish, uh, even through the misses, which is something that Chevy Chase was simply not capable of doing. He couldn't carry a shitty weekend update. It was like he was sulking about it almost. It just became unpleasant to watch. What a breath of fresh air Jane is uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing her more. She has that grace and that her, that natural charisma to, to, to keep it going anyway. Sort of like I said, they keep frigging up the production with the cameras. doesn't matter. She's, she's Jane Curtin. She's got this. I don't think she does enough when it comes to comedy because she's, she's very, very talented when it comes to anything comedic. And I, I don't think she's ever gotten used as much as she should have been. No, I agree universally loved by <laughs> our, our hosts and co-hosts is is one jane Curtin. so then we go to the ad and it's uh jesus it's bad use of garrett number 6041 he's a marine recruiter and he's cruising the streets to the sound of the marine march looking for men and then the it, it's it's a gay joke and the sign comes up the marines looking for a few good men it's it was probably an old joke then but uh, i really didn't like this it wasn't a good use of garrett it was kind of a stupid joke some of their ads have been masterpieces and uh this was garbage yeah really stupid filler no enjoyment here waste of garrett morris as you said i have nothing to add sucked yeah garbage totally total garbage didn't like it now we go to crossroads and it's not the ralph macchio one or the britney spears one that's weird and it's Dick Cavett as a reverend, and he looks absolutely hilarious for some reason. I couldn't figure out why it was funny, but I laughed my head off. And he's basically narrating, and he throws to a, a story of a family. 
in a crossroads where John Belushi, as the son, wants to quit school and go to work. Dan Aykroyd, his father, gets annoyed and hits him. And then Belushi confronts his mother with the same thing. They're all sitting at the kitchen table here. And she hits him as well. And then Dick Cavett, as the reverend, joins the family for supper. He's also annoyed by Belushi and hits him as well. Um, he gives a punchline, but it's a big build for a shitty punchline. If they could have tightened this sketch up just a little bit, that punchline probably would have hit a lot better, I think. The biggest mm. thing for any type of sketch is if you have like just a really dumb punchline, if the sketch is too long, you're going to lose it in translation. Belushi uh, is fantastic when it comes to physical humor. Like every time he got struck, he, you know, he, he sold it. He didn't oversell it. But I think they could have tightened up where where kind of Dick comes in and does his little preacher bit, mm-hmm. and it would have been it would have been fine. But like it's great right up until that punchline, and then it just fizzles out, which is which is really terrible because like for me this is was kind of the the better sketch so far of the evening. I mean, I didn't get it. I guess I, I didn't I didn't find it very funny. I, I found it laborious to sit through. I, I keep going into the sketches this evening with pretty high expectations. Ever the optimist. This next one, they got it. Uh, but then, you know, they, they all keep stalling out for me. So we go to a Chiron. There's a guy wearing no underwear. Did you guys notice that he kind of had a weird face he put on a couple times? And I was- or maybe there was a hint of truth. Like he was 100% like commando, raw dog in it right there in the audience. And <laughs> he got busted. It's like <laughs> shit. Our next bit is a pre-taped bit. It's it's a preview for a new NBC show. It's called Mobile Shrink, and this was actually recorded for a previous episode, but they ran short on time. And it features Chevy Chase in his sole appearance tonight. Oddly enough, his first patient is also Ann Risley, who later joins the show in season six. So the mobile shrink basically goes and finds people and uh, starts asking them questions about their psychology. And he's randomly interrupting people at work and stuff, including Lorraine at a grocery store, a pizza man who I couldn't identify, and construction worker John Belushi. I thought this was a pretty funny idea. I, I wasn't, I didn't laugh out loud a lot, but I kind of thought it was, it was clever and cute. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's just, it, it's purely coincidence that Chevy's here, but I think it might be a good coincidence. They got to be worried. Chevy was the star of the show. He knew it, and they knew it. Especially when they're sitting down looking at this episode. What, what a shitty post chase episode to set your foot off with. Anyway, I digress more on that later. Uh, this this was. This was okay. You know, I I chuckled a few times. You're right. It was cute. And I don't know if you noticed, but there was like two people in the audience were like, whoop, when they saw Chevy (laughs) come on the screen. I did notice the mini pop, if you will. Yes. (laughs) It was okay. That's it. It was okay. Like, it's it's an interesting premise. You couldn't really hear what he was saying to some of the people he he was talking to as the mobile shrink. I did get a genuine chuckle when he was talking to Belushi. Uh, But that was it. I just feel like it was one of those types of sketches where they just like write a bunch of stupid ideas for like a sketch. Like I I literally have a piece of paper right in front of me from like a few years ago and it has things like that. You know, we're going to put this in here as filler or because Chevy's not even in the show at this point. Um, We're just going to throw that out there so people can see that he's still here somehow in some way. So our next bit is How Things Work. And this is a talk show hosted by Jane Curtin. Dick Cavett plays Merle Tadburney. And he talks about how pressure groups work. And he basically gets her to describe how he got on the show. And he says thousands of letters were sent. And he runs an organization that basically starts fake letter writing campaigns. 
and the letters were all sent from his organization to get him uh, get him put on the show. He mentioned he his group works for members of other groups, including a certain Eastern European country. And he goes on to say it's Serbo-Croatian, but we know he's probably talking about Polish or Poland. I just thought this was brilliant work. I really liked this. Uh, you know, it wasn't the type of, type of thing that I laughed out loud a lot, but uh, this thing is real. These are real things that actually happen. And uh, I thought Cavett was the perfect person to do this sketch. And Jane's sort of incredulous look as the host was fantastic. I enjoyed it too. And I also, I didn't, it wasn't like laugh out loud funny for me. I wasn't in hysterics, but I really did think it was smart. And I thought they were both really good. And I thought the writing was really spot on. Uh, and incidentally, that kind of tactic is how I figure you and I, because of doing this podcast, will someday get invited to attend a taping of Saturday Night Live because of the thousands and our mass letter writing campaign. <laughs> Which would be like, I guess, by Dick Cavett's instructions, it'd be like you and I and a couple of the third chairs writing the same thing over and over again. Yes, and we have Skynet. <laughs> Kevin, I'm interested. What? Where, where are you sitting on this one? Uh, I like this. I thought it was a really good sketch. Got right to the point. Most of the sketches in this episode so far feel drawn out. And it's like they're just trying to fill time because they're not sure how to end these sketches. This is the first time where I feel like it was very well organized. All the beats hit perfectly. The serbo-Croatian joke in, uh, that he's told with the typewriter and the pill bottle. I actually laughed at that. I thought that was like really <laughs> stupid, funny joke. I don't know. It's the first time of the night where I actually really enjoyed a sketch. Yeah. And it didn't feel like it fizzled out. It didn't feel like it was um, just there as a placeholder till we get to something better, if we get to something better. Now we go to a Gary Weiss film, and this is a repeat, but I'd love to talk about it again. Um, this aired on episode 11 of season one, the Peter Cook Dudley Moore episode. And it's Gary Weiss visiting Paramount Novelty. Matt and I have seen it. I, 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 I liked it. The woman was charming and funny and real. Matt, any further thoughts? And then uh, we'll hear from Kevin. Just that I enjoyed it. I, I love Gary Weiss's slice of life, New York films. And this brought me right back to my childhood going to the It store and, and these these weird big boppers type places in our hometown with all, all this weird shit that just kids enjoy. I like that these aren't all about the jokes. It was just uh, a nice presentation and she was cool. And the subject matter was cool. It was all cool. I dig it. I just want to talk about how fucking adorable this little lady is in her in her joke shop i could watch her list any number of things because she just has just a, a genuine kind-hearted curious feel to her like what is she gonna say about this next item or what she's gonna say about this next item and the joke shop made me feel like um some of the there's like stores here in peterborough like small little stores that are kind of organized but not organized but the people that work there make it feel you know you go in you, you generally feel comfortable you want to buy something there just to support the person and you you stay there afterwards to have a conversation with the person that's there it's just it's really uh it's really homey i guess is the best way to put it make me feel like walking into a a video rental store back in the 90s, if that makes any sense. You know, like I could smell how that store might might smell kind of thing when I was watching it. But yeah, it was, it was very good. I really enjoyed it. Okay, we now have our Chiron, A Man Forgot to Feed the Cat. And we go to B History. And I wrote all hands on deck for this one. It's quite a long telling of the uh, sort of typical turn of the century immigrant story framed through the lives of some bees. Belushi and Lorraine play an older couple 
telling their son, played by Neil Levy, about their lives in America and facing racism from wasps, including Dan Aykroyd, who's an immigration officer at Ellis Island, and then Dick Cavett, who plays uh, Belushi's uh, boss, who's a sweatshop owner. Bonus points on this one for going to sepia tone, which I always like when they do it. I thought Belushi and Lorraine were really good in this, but this was really long, and there weren't enough laughs for the length of time it was for me. This is sort of an American tale with a, with a couple of bee puns in there. I suppose well-crafted, but I I didn't get the laughs or really much sentimentality, to be honest with you. I think it's somebody looked up what the meaning of wasps was and was like, I got a really good idea for a sketch. They just needed to put something into the show at that time. That I feel like that's what this sketch was. Like somebody wanted to be one of their stuff on television at that point. Like they have a, a hat where they just pick which filler sketch are we going to put here next kind of thing. There's a lot of potential with this. And I just feel like it's not there. Like Dick Cavett, his role as a sweatshop owner, only genuine laugh I got out of this entire sketch was, um, you know, all the work you can eat. His whole little spiel he went on there when he was talking about the sweatshop. <laughs> Criminally underused Belushi and Lorraine in this. Like they were really good playing off each other. I feel like they could have done more with it. I feel like they needed to be more bee puns. There was not enough bee puns. They're bees, wasps. Uh-huh. That was the whole basis of it. They could, they, you know, they should have leaned into that more. And then the punchline at the end of it was son of a bee. It's another one of these long drawn out sketches for a really stupid punchline, which don't get me wrong. I have written sketches for stupid punchlines. Like <laughs> when I started doing sketch comedy, like that was my go-to is like, I have a really stupid opening and a really stupid ending and it has to attach to each other somehow. Wrote a lot of bombs, a yeah. lot of them. And I feel like this is one an example of something that should have not been in the show or maybe should have went into a workshop for like another week or two before they put it to air. It's just, I enjoyed the premise and then it just disappointed me. I expected more from the bees when I saw the bees. Like there's some performances there. And I really, even though she, I don't even, she didn't even have a line, but uh, Jane Curtin's snotty woman laugh she's standing amongst the crowd was uh, very well pulled off. But for the most part, this is not enough jokes to justify these big, ambitious sketches. Somebody wants to do them. And somebody's got these ideas and like, yeah, and it'll be long. Somebody thinks it's okay that it's so friggin' long. Then, you know, go over it. How's this going to look on TV? I feel like there's some fundamentals missing here. Presentation. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, if they elongated some sketches just because they needed to fill time because they didn't have enough for Dick Cavett. This, this feels like an intern wrote it, if that's a better way to put it. Or like a, a, a comedy school student's like, okay, here's my sketch. And he was like a dying child. And this was his final wish. I want my in. <laughs> This episode of Saturday Night Live. Our next bit is the uh, music. We have Ry Cooter come out again, and he sings "He'll Have to Go." I am far more I'm far more familiar with the Jim Reeves version. The accordion by uh, oh, what's his name, Flaco Jimenez, I think, was quite loud here, but it was interesting. This song's also from Chicken Skin Music. The person who books the music on the show is fucking clueless. It doesn't have to be this boring. There's cool music out there that should be on late night television, and they make no effort to find it. 
if this song was playing at a bar, this is where I would probably go to the bar to get a beer or go to the bathroom or <laughs> just, you know, go out and have a cigarette. You know, it's it's a nice song. You know, it's a comforting song. It's That's not what I want to hear on a you know sketch variety show. Let's make the B sketch a little bit longer so I don't have to sit here and listen to the song. Like, <laughs> you know, you know who Dick Cavett's got on his show? He's got Jefferson Airplane and Joni Mitchell. Same wow. episode. Come on. So now we go to Mr. Mike's least loved bedtime tales. And he tells the story of a blind chick that basically gets eaten by an alligator. And then he just gives his uh, his final summation by saying love is a death camp in a costume. I always like Mr. Mike's uh, bedtime tales. I like a lot of Mike O'Donohue's stuff. This was no exception. I enjoyed this as well. I like Michael O'Donohue. I, uh, I, I was unfamiliar with him before we started this project. Uh, but the more... Uh, you point out to me that he wrote, the more it, it makes sense to me that I enjoy it. I, I definitely enjoy his uh, his brand of comedy. And I really like that the shadows make him look like the devil. I'm sure he personally enjoyed that quite a bit as well. This sketch made me feel uncomfortable and sad. And that is why I liked it a lot. Some of the more genuine laughs out of this entire episode so far. Uh, and it's just, it's great. Absolutely great. Somewhere, Michael O'Donohue is, is looking down at you, shaking his head yes, because he liked making people <laughs> uncomfortable and sad. Typically, if you squirm in your seat during a sketch, uh, you know who wrote it. A Chiron um, on a person who's wondering what to do at 1 a.m. Keith, the people in that Chiron you just mentioned, that's Canadian music duo Rough Trade. That was Carol Pope, and I recognize that strange-looking man beside her from my Rough Trade record, which of course features High School Confidential. That is definitely them. I saw As soon as I saw them, I was like, holy shit, that's got to be Carol Pope, and then it was gone. But I am sure it was. It's Rough Trade. I guarantee it. It's Carol Pope. I'm telling you, they're Canadian, High School Confidential, big hit just confirm but i think you're i think you're completely right who it is i'll confirm it later but yes matt that's absolutely right <laughs> cool <laughs> i wish they had been the musical guests so we now go to what makes people laugh and it's al franken and tom davis doing a live study to see what makes people laugh i'm going to guarantee that this was just tacked on when or when elliot gould dropped out to fill the time they've got this machine there it's the laughograph or the meter. Um, Franken does a bit where he's telling the audience to avoid thinking of like rude body parts or as he says, words like Vaseline and sand, the audience wasn't digging this. Neither was I. The audience gives a very polite clap at the end. I mean, this is two strangers on the Saturday night live stage at the end of a lackluster episode. This didn't do it for me. Franken and Franken and Davis both, but especially Franken goes on to be like a legendary SNL name and uh, really struggling in these early years. To me, it felt like two art school students trying their best. I, I had a couple of Joe and chuckles and I, I, I adore Al Franken. I, I gave some pity laughs here and there. Like, I think a lot of it was lost uh, in translation because I don't think they had it prepared as much as they would have, probably due to Elliot Gould not showing up on the show mm -hmm. um, or or it was a sketch idea that again uh, should have went back to be workshopped with everybody else they're generally charming the two of them like kind of working off each other but at the same time you know it's at the end of the show everybody's just waiting for them to put a bullet in it it seemed misplaced i guess is the best way to put it and i can't put it much better uh, i really did think it was uh, very amateurish as well uh, I, I had a few chuckles when he said pubic i, I think i chuckled the loudest and i actually did like 
the reveal. Like, actually, we're the comedy duo. <laughs> and they kind of stripped off his lab coat. It wasn't bereft of laughter for me. These are still the guys that did that Pong sketch. I'm not all in. So then we go to the good nights, and uh, Dick Cavett has to kill about 90 seconds. And uh, he says he had a rotten time playing Elliot Gould. But he enjoyed uh, being around the folks, a very fun and witty group. Everybody seemed uncomfortable at the good nights. Kind of like when you do a show and you know the show didn't hit that well uh, and everybody's just waiting to get to the after party to leave. But you have to you have to fill that little bit of time. Props to Dick Cavett, though, for like just powering through that. I don't think he had anything else prepared. He's just like, I want to get out of here, but, you know, I'm going to be a professional and see it through. It's just awkward. Like the whole this whole episode was just awkward. Got to do your curtain call, though, right? All right, so I'll jump into the epilogue. Dick Cavett jumps to his new show at PBS that debuts in October of 77. He's an elder statesman of TV called in to, to, make, to make comments on things every now and then. His shows are available all over the internet. And as Matt said, they're well worth the watch. Uh, it's, it's a great time capsule of what was going on and what was truly important at the time. Dick Cavett does not host again, but he does make a cameo in a 1983 episode. He's truly a one-of-a-kind guy that our generation really hasn't rediscovered yet, and hopefully that happens soon because uh, I think this world needs a new Dick Cavett. On the music side of the epilogue, Rye Cooter does not come back. He's still performing. As Kevin mentioned, he got into film scoring, and he was very successful uh, there, and he, he's, he continues to collaborate with a lot of other artists. He's got six Grammys in a few different categories, and his last album was 2018's Prodigal Son. So it's now time to rate our host, our music, and uh, and give our picks for the night. The host, Dick Cavett, did what he could. He was good at what he did, definitely limited. And uh, depending on how late he stepped in for Elliot Gould, um, this could be a triumph or a defeat, regardless of how the uh, how shitty the episode was. It really seems like there was a last-minute scramble. You wouldn't cast Dick Cavett in roles that you had written for Elliot Gould. I I'm really going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he really did his best, but it wasn't a particularly funny episode. I put none of that at Dick Cavett's feet. Um, I think he did his best with shit material. Yeah, Dick showed up. I agree completely. He was uh, he was good with what he did. The guy's the guy's not here writing sketch comedy every week. He he's just showed up for you as a favor. Gave him a bag of shit. He did the best with what he was given, and he succeeded in something. Honestly, for me, he was the he was the the shining light of the episode, given how terrible this episode was. Okay, music. Uh, Ry Cooter is just not for me. The first song didn't do it for me at all. The second song I liked, but it's a lesser version to a more classic song. For me, it's hard to see it in its own merits. That being said, I have gone and actually found some other Ry Cooter stuff that suits my tastes a little bit more, and I've been enjoying that. F minus. Ry Cooter was such a boring musical choice. I, I would I would have appreciated it more if he was like willfully bad, like that crazy disco grandma. <laughs> Betty Carter, the scat and grandma. Yeah, that was wretched. But gosh, what a watch. You don't forget that. Uh, the only thing I remember about Rye Cooter is that he, he had a colorful shirt. It makes no impression on me whatsoever. I don't think it makes an impression on the show. And I really think they got to get their ass in gear with these musical guests. It's, I just, some, it's so self-serving for somebody, I'm sure. All this bland-ass Americana. Let me live. I want to feel alive when I'm up late Saturday night watching TV. 
I went back and listened to some of his stuff uh, outside of what they showed here. The only thing I can remember about the performance was the accordion player. Um, my eyes were dead focused on him the entire time. Uh, also, the audio mixing wasn't the best, but then again, it's a show from the 70s, so I, I don't expect it to be A+. We probably had better songs they could have used instead of the two that they used there, or maybe something that had more high energy. I don't want to say it put me to sleep, but it definitely got me out of the room for a few moments while I grabbed something to eat. Like if you're watching this on Netflix or a streaming service, they don't have the musical acts in there. And mm -hmm. merciful God, I wish I, that was the version of this I watched. <laughs> and that's right there is the ultimate condemnation of Rye Cooter. Uh, so uh, what was your worst sketch of the night, fellas? You got a lot to pick from. That is, a, that is a tough choice. This is Sophie's choice right here for the worst sketch. Between the bees and puppy uppers, I'm going to be honest. Probably going to go with bees. I can see puppy uppers being for someone in terms mm -hmm. of the type of sketch it is. Uh, it just felt like somebody's disappointed. Somebody's like, "I, Dad, I wrote this sketch, and they finally put it on Saturday Night Live, and he's like, huh, I wasted <laughs> money on school with this one. Just <laughs> terrible. Just and then the son of the, oh, I'll be a son of a bee. Like, I haven't grown so loud in my entire life. My least favorite sketch of the evening was the uh, writer's circle jerk of the Watergate Nixon sketch, which was uh, DOA, dated on arrival. Not enough substance for me. Certainly not enough jokes. Too long. Belushi sleepwalking. You know, Aykroyd out there doing his Nixon voice, trying to save the show front load the show with this it's just it spelled doom right away my least favorite sketch of the night is actually franken and davis at the end um if they were tucked in last minute good for them but i didn't really find that that funny they seem that they can write well but uh, they keep finding themselves doing this sort of stuff they did the native american thing last year pong Maybe they're just better writing for each other. They're still young. They're still developing. But at this stage, this was not really funny. Um, I would have preferred almost anything else here. So what's your uh, best uh, sketch for the night? My favorite sketch of the evening is going to go on this particular episode to uh, Michael O'Donoghue's bedtime. Michael O'Donoghue's bedtime stories. Gave me the biggest laugh. Uh, I thought it was the most interesting thing I saw of the evening. Yeah, this, this show was just a big bloated mess otherwise. And this was just some cool, dark comedy tucked away at the end. I'm going to go with uh, how things work. In terms of uh, everything else that's on here, it, I did generally enjoy it. I really liked it a lot. It was between that and... <laughs> and Mr. Mike, to be honest. And I, as much as I did enjoy the Mr. Mike sketch, I just really liked how things were kind of came together. Uh, and it was probably the strongest showing for both Dick Cavett and, you know, Jane Curtin. I'm just, you know, I love Jane Curtin. She's fantastic. It's my Jane Curtin bias coming out. <laughs> this is a testament to how Matt and I, our, our tastes vary. I actually went with the Nixon blonde ambition sketch. Watergate junkie here. Um, and there was a lot of jokes in there that I really liked and really appreciated. Belushi was not great, but I thought Aykroyd's Nixon was great. His bit about using the tape machines to make Dean look stupid were had me laughing. I was torn between this and how things work, but I, I went with this one and it's a lot of it's on the uh, just my general interest in, in, in Watergate stuff and Aykroyd's Nixon. So who's the star of the night, Matt? My star of the night went to Jane Curtin. I thought she carried Weekend Update to a degree 
that was welcome after the slog that was Chevy Chase. I also found her supplemental roles uh, very good this evening, as I mentioned, or, or made it a point to mention, the one where she didn't even have any lines. She just stood back in sepia tone and laughed arrogantly. Uh, that was a big hit for me. She was my uh, favorite of the night. I'm going to agree with Matt, like 100%, Jane Curtin. Um, weekend update was charming and fun. I absolutely loved it. All the little uh, flubbiness that came from it with the with little camera uh, mishap and so forth. Uh, she carried it. So entertaining. Uh, of course, my favorite sketch being uh, how things work. I thought she played really well against uh, Dick Cavett, uh, and she's just generally uh, a warm and charming personality. And again, she needs to be used more. Is she still around? Please do more things, Jane Curtin, if you're listening to this podcast right now. My star of the night, I actually went with Lorraine. Um, I enjoyed Poppy Uppers. She was good as the Mother and the Bees sketch. Short but funny bit in Mobile Shrink. And I enjoyed the Smokey the Bear bit. Um, Gilda was good in this one um, because she didn't fall back on her regular characters. And Jane was good as well. Lorraine took, took the nod from me. Uh, overall, if I was there at the time and I saw this as the first Chevyless episode, I'd be very concerned. Matt has mentioned that. Whether it was a loss of Elliot Gould or maybe some logistics switching back to Studio 8H, just overall burnout. This episode was really weak. It was entirely devoid of energy, and it was just a mess of really forgettable sketches. One of Gary Weiss's best films, but it's a repeat. Mr. Mike was fun. Jane at the desk, definitely refreshing. This really feels like a last-minute scramble to make up for Elliot Gould, and maybe they would have been better off in the long run if they'd maybe just run a rerun. I like Dick Cavett, but this one really didn't do it for me. For me, I'm giving this one a 4 out of 10. You nailed it for me. I also gave it a 4 out of 10. I thought it was a waste of the host. The sketches were too long. You know, a couple of highlights from the not ready for primetime players keep it from being a complete disaster. But otherwise, what a bore uh, from start to finish. And I, too, I was really excited about this episode, knowing this was the first full episode without Chevy Chase. And I'm not out here saying that the show wasn't funny because of Chevy Chase, because when Chevy was off after his accident, the show really soared without him. So maybe they'll figure that out. I think they'll figure it out. I mean, it's not like they get canceled. So they'll figure it out. But uh, this this was a terrible start. Uh, for me, it's going to be a 3 out of 10. Uh, I just thought it was it was a slog to get through. I felt like it was a struggle without stopping it or pausing it. Like I felt like I should have took a break partway through. Maybe I would have enjoyed it a, a bit more. I watched it twice. I was going to try and watch it a third time, and I just I couldn't bear myself. I just looked at my notes like you know what I'm I'm good. I I don't want to see this again. Again, weekend update was really entertaining and fun, but like the first opening half of the show was turned me off from wanting to finish the rest of it. Thankfully. It, you know, you finish watching the rest of it, you get to see some decent stuff. But like from start to finish, it's just not great. They probably should have either went with a rerun or did a late night Saturday movie, put a, a concert on there. You know, you know, NBC's got, <laughs> you got a nice group of people working at NBC that could get a great musical guest that you can just put for that entire time there. You know, something really boring and suck the energy out much like this episode was. Yeah, three to ten for me. Not great. Okay, so with my four, Matt's four, and Kevin's three, it averages at a 3.7. The Internet Movie Database gave this one a 6.8, which uh, which is shocking to me, actually. That's really high. I know they're they're usually quite positive on these things, but that's higher than this one deserves. Is that at a 10 or is that at a 20? That's at a 10. 
Okay. <laughs> so that makes that one the 17th best episode of season two and the 376th best episode of uh, up to November 2021. Um, I think they rated this one a little high. Who's out there looking for Dick Cavett and Rye Cooter? So I don't, I don't really know, get the, uh, the big pops for this one, uh, yeah. especially not into that territory. But I mean, uh, I've been, I've been more egregious by, by the online ratings before. This one <laughs> isn't quite as egregious. Yeah, so Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. Hopefully you can swing back for a better episode down the line. I swear are, they are out there. Outside of the episode itself, this is actually quite fun to go through this process. So yeah, I, I really liked it. Yeah, you have a great perspective on it as, as one who's written quite a few sketches. Yeah, I really enjoyed having uh, having your perspective today. Me too. Very insightful, Kevin. Thank you for coming. Nice meeting you as well, Matt. I believe this is the first time uh, we've met. So this is uh, this has been pretty cool. We're going to be back in about a week with Paul Simon and George Harrison. And uh, Chili will be joining us for that episode. So uh, I know you're excited for George Harrison, Matt. I know you're not so excited about Paul Simon, but maybe one balances out the other. You know what? He's hosting. It's not like... You know, there's the benefit here that Paul Simon is apparently not playing music. That That is, that's a huge plus. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Until then, we'll be doing our best to scramble and fill in for Elliot Gould as he goes off to greener and warmer pastures here in SNL. 